welcome to Let's Get Ethical, a podcast of the Center for Ethics and its Ethics of AI Lab at the University of Toronto. Today's topic, Legal Ethics and the Criminal Lawyer, with Matt Gourley, a criminal lawyer from Toronto. Welcome to Let's Get Ethical. Um, today we're talking to Matt Gourley, uh, who is a uh, lawyer with the Toronto firm of Hennen Hutchison. Right. And uh, Matt, you're here with us today to talk about uh, legal ethics, All uh, right. ma- mainly in criminal law, but maybe if we get lucky, even in other areas. But okay. criminal law is kind of the most interesting one anyway. So, I think right? so. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we start off by... Uh, you telling us kind of how, how you got interested in, in criminal law and, and uh, perhaps eventually what gives rise to ethic dilemmas, uh, if any, in, in your practice? Sure. Well, I think, I think all of us who got into criminal law, at least on the defense side of things, uh, probably have uh, um, an instinct for wanting to stand up for the underdog, um, take on powerful interests and uh, protect civil liberties, which is a lot of what criminal law is about. Um, Most of us also have an interest in being in court as opposed to just being in the office and uh, and litigating, arguing in court, examining witnesses and and, um, uh, being in court uh, on a regular basis. So that's why I got interested in criminal law uh, initially. I've been practicing for uh, over 10 years now, and uh, every day it's something new and interesting because people manage to uh, commit crimes or get accused of committing crimes in all sorts of interesting ways that are rarely the same thing twice. It sounds exciting and, and important, um, but also perhaps not quite as popular as as other areas of, uh, of law. Do you, do you find yourself getting asked a lot of Questions about about your ethics as a criminal law defense attorney. Well, certainly every criminal lawyer gets asked uh, routinely how they can uh, defend these people, how they specifically people charged with notorious uh, crimes or unpopular acts. Um, I got to say that's something that that uh, I think most criminal lawyers spend very little, if any, time uh, actually pondering. Mainly, it boils down to because somebody has to do it, and you want people who are competent, competent and dedicated uh, to it uh, to take up that role. It's a role on which all of our liberties depend, um, and you know everybody can look down on it until they're the one in need of a lawyer, and then they're going to want a criminal lawyer who's dedicated and talented and and deciduous. Um, so, you know. That and the fact that you defend people, you don't defend crimes. Nobody gets into criminal law because they are in favor of criminal activity. Uh, What they are in favor of is uh, ensuring that everybody is treated fairly in the system where, uh, but for proper representation, the decks would be very heavily stacked against the accused. And and do you you find yourself... um asking yourself this this question more urgently in some cases than, than in others? Um, are, there, are there some types of crime or, or defendant that 
you do struggle with, um, or or is this to you such a such an obvious answer to a to a familiar question that you don't? Struggle I, I with don't struggle much? with it at all. I mean, I think so, I I think you know there there is one school of thought that um, it's okay to not want to defend certain types of of crimes, and and some lawyers, I think, not many, but some. Uh, uh, adhere to that view, and and I can see it in certain limited instances. If you know, if you yourself have been the victim of a particular type of crime, you might find it difficult to um, provide the most full-throated defense in that in that context. If you are still affected by that, but other than that, I don't. I mean, we we act for people whose personal values uh, we don't sympathize with in some cases but um but that's i think neither here nor there i mean people aren't um put in jail for uh, their personal values hopefully uh they're put in jail if the crown manages to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed a particular offense and it's our job to hold them to that to that standard do you um do you think it's not an, an ethically significant question, or do you think the answer is obvious to the, to the ethical question? Because I'm um, I don't remember um, pondering this a lot when I I was in law school, and I always mm -hmm. thought criminal law was really interesting. But it seems to be that that one of the things that criminal lawyers, when asked about legal ethics, also talk about all the time is that they're asked that question all the time. So is this the question that that people who don't understand the criminal justice system ask and if they understood it better do you think they wouldn't be asking it so it's a kind of a, a, an informational deficit that that would i think maybe partly i mean i don't i, I don't want to say that it's an in invalid question or 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 um an inappropriate curiosity to have but i think the answer is relatively obvious when you understand what the role of the what of the role of the defense lawyer is and the uh, the morality that goes with that role. I mean, it is a role morality that's based on a set of ethical obligations that is uh, particular to the role and are not necessarily equivalent to the ethical obligations that we um, adhere to in everyday life. And that, that can be um, somewhat jarring for people when the client you're, you're representing is somebody whose uh, own morality appears, at least to popular sentiment, to be severely lacking in some way. But in my view, it's the same. Every lawyer in whatever field has a role morality that they inhabit and, and, and carry out obligations in, in relation to. And, you know, though, if you are a... Uh, any kind, if you're a corporate solicitor or a tax lawyer, your obligations are, are pretty clear to uh, 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 get whatever legal advantages are available to your client that may come at the expense of other people or the general welfare. And I don't think many people um, uh, find that overly jarring, even though th those roles too involve ethical uh, obligations that are different from ordinary the, those that we uh, adhere to in everyday life, and we don't normally keep secrets uh, 
from people that that we are um, having frank discussions with in everyday life. But being a lawyer imposes obligations to keep secrets in certain um, in, in certain circumstances. We're not adversarial, hopefully, at least not overly so in everyday life. But being a lawyer imposes certain obligations of adversarialism. So those aren't unique to criminal law, but I think people find them um, the most striking in criminal law because the underlying dispute is something that inflames, understandably inflames emotions and, and sentiments of various kinds. Um, yeah, so thinking about the, the role morality in, in place, I mean, that was depend on how you define the role, what's the relevant role that kind of generates these moral obligations. So, so do you think then that it's a, a fundamental morality that's shared by all, all lawyers as such? Or do you think that, you know, that there's a different kind of morality that arises from the role of the criminal defense attorney? Or is it simply kind of a more, you know, a, a stronger or more acute or uh, maybe in some cases more, more troubling version of the same morality? Or is it a, a distinct role or is it, a, is, it the, is it the same role but just in a different form? I think it's the same role that lawyers have in general. Lawyers have obligations to um, their client, which uh, make their, which condition their ethical decision making in a way that is not, um, is not the same as how we act in order in everyday life towards our colleagues, friends, family members, and so on. Um, I don't think that the criminal lawyer's uh, role morality is particularly is any different from those that all lawyers uh, have, um, but it it just arises in circumstances that are particularly fraught in in certain ways, um, and you know perhaps it's the, the the reason why most of us don't have. Um, don't experience much difficulty in inhabiting that role is that there's obviously a selection uh, pr process going on. People who uh, come to this line of work are generally ones who are in the main comfortable with the set of obligations that it imposes on you. Um, and only in very rare circumstances um, does that break down in some way. Now, an example would be there was a recent case in Australia, that's a big scandal there because a, a well-known criminal defense lawyer uh, who acted for a number of uh, high-profile organized crime figures turned out to be acting as an informant for the police against her own clients for a number of years. This led to, when, once it was discovered, it led to, I believe, a royal commission there and um, a real scandal in the justice system because you had all these people represented by somebody who was not, it, it turns out, acting in their best interest and many, many convictions will be uh, jeopardized because of that. Now you could say uh, that lawyer may well have been acting uh, in accordance with what she believed was uh, moral in that uh, she was providing information that, that would help uh, catch uh, and incriminate some very dangerous people and benefit 
uh, public safety by doing so. However, I think on any understanding, that was a profoundly unethical thing to do in her circumstance, given the obligations that, that she had solemnly undertaken on behalf of this client and um, in respect of the system. So in, those, in a very extreme case like that, um, certain notions of ordinary morality and the morality of the set of ethics we have as counsel can clash dramatically. Very more often, the tensions are more subtle. And those are the ones we tend to deal with in daily practice, because I can assure you most of us are not out informing on our clients. Well, of course you would say that. <laughs> uh, so, so, then, so, so one way of, of uh, thinking about this in more nuanced terms then would depend on what the relevant role is and what, uh, what, whatever obligations the role uh, generates. And so these might be different types of morality. Um, um, so but what about the distinction between law and, and, and ethics? Um, so I, I, um, I, I always find it interesting that, that at the adversarial system in, in the United States and in Canada in particular um, spends so much time thinking about um, legal ethics, where in civil law countries, say, say Germany, the, kind of the notion that you would have an elaborate um, doctrine or, or even you know, normative system that sets out the ethical obligation of a lawyer um, strikes many people as you know, interesting, but, but certainly not worthy of, of, uh, of instruction or scholarship or any kind of sustained uh, attention. Um, and, and I wonder if that perhaps is, is a result of, of maintaining a very strict distinction between, you know, between legal obligations and the legal sphere and an ethical uh, sphere. Does that, does that um, ring true for your way of... You know, I think that's about? right. I mean, that's an interesting contrast, and I'm not well enough educated on the European system to, to uh, fully understand the, the contrast, but I do think that our adversarial system um, produces uh, ethical tensions in a way that a, that, uh, a different... Uh, for instance, a more inquisitorial system may not. And that arises from the fact that in an adversarial uh, system, uh, you have an absolute obligation to represent your client to the best of your ability to achieve the best possible result for the client at the same time as you um, are bound by a duty, uh, a set of duties to the court um, to be candid, not mislead, and so forth, that can pull you in the opposite direction. And, and you stand against the, across the courtroom from a crown prosecutor who is, in, although in a modified way because their ethical obligations are tempered, but is, is still engaged in an adversarial, um, uh, in, in an adversarial uh, position vis-a-vis uh, you and your client. So uh, because these, these, these obligations can be at, at cross purposes, uh, that gives rise to this elaborate set of rules, concerns, problems that we all uh, think about and, uh, and debate in, in, in our system all the time. Um, and if, if we had a system where there was less of a 
of a, a stark divide between crown, defense, and court, um, those those tensions might be more muted. Yeah, I'm. I'm um... I'm, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how civil lawyers see their mm -hmm. role, in, including in, in criminal defense, uh, in, in, in most cases or as a rule. But, um, but I, my guess is that that many would would agree with you that their job is to represent their client um, even zealously, um, just within a different system that takes out of their hands you know, the obligation to, for example, collect evidence and to turn it over instead to the court. So it, it all runs through the court and is inquisitorial in this way. Um, but but I, I would suspect that they may not see themselves as um, in an adversarial position vis-a-vis, -vis, say, the prosecutor or, or even the court, but I think they would think of themselves as, as being obligated to be loyal to their client in in just the, the same way. I, I, I expect that's that's true, but I think that the that the fact that that they have a more active court that's involved in um, gathering and presenting the facts conditions that role in a way that's quite different from our system, where we have a neutral, passive uh, uh, judge or jury that is simply a, re a recipient of information that's entirely marshaled by the parties. And it's in marshalling the, the evidence in the case that uh, by the Crown and defense that, that the real courtroom conflict occurs and which is really the basis of our adversarial system. So I think, um, I think in that sense, um, you know, we, we, the, the way that the adversarial system involves um, uh, two different actual presentations of the evidence in, a in an attempt to persuade a neutral decision maker of the correct one um, uh, gives rise to tensions that probably don't exist in the in the inquisitorial method. Yeah, I mean, I but I, 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 I will have to watch a lot more Netflix documentaries about <laughs> French murder cases to confirm that. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I think it depends very much mm -hmm. on the case and depends on the lawyers too. So I mean, the um, I, I, I'm I'm no expert on on uh, civil law criminal procedure either, but I, I I do know something about German criminal procedure and I, I yeah. visited some uh, German criminal proceedings and and yes, I think the general assumption is that um, it, it's radically different and people know how to behave. For example, mm -hmm. there are certain things that just aren't done, even though you actually could do them if you wanted to because the law would permit you to mm -hmm. but you just you just don't interfere with the kind of uh, common process unless you do so so there there are the uh, the famous example of the lawyers representing the Bada Meinhof mm -hmm. uh, gang they, and who are always trotted out as, as the example of you know uh, what not to do and 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 why because that it completely uh, destroys the kind of the, the the process. What what used to be very efficient and run you know nicely, uh, mm -hmm. all of a sudden breaks down because they they uh, took advantage of of the legal rights that they and their clients had, and the mm -hmm. result was a complete breakdown of the of the process. Uh, but my sense is that so that that they are um, you know 
especially German criminal law uh, defense attorneys who, who I think within the constraints of the civil system um, see themselves as, as being as zealous as they, as they can. I'm glad um, to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next time you're in Germany. Yeah. Um, but so, so to me, uh, that, that, that raises one, uh, another way of uh, framing, uh, the, a common way of framing the kind of ethical dilemmas, and, and that is, um, on the one hand, an, uh, an obligation to be civil, and on the other hand, an obligation to be, to be zealous. This is kind mm -hmm. of a, especially nowadays, a, a way of framing mm -hmm. you know, the, the tension. And, and, and sometimes I ask uh, German or, or civil law colleagues what their take on, you know, on, this, on this tension is, and they, they really have no idea what I'm saying, and then, mm -hmm. but often they will then say, well, you know, the entire adversarial process <laughs> strikes us <laughs> as, as very uncivil. Right. Um, so they don't understand what, what that tension might look like. But um, I'm, I'm curious how you think or if you think that this this uh, way of framing the tension, uh, ethical tension, uh, is, is is kind of useful or or well, I think I think the 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 concept of civility is something that we need to be precise about, and I think it's thrown around in a way that's not particularly uh, helpful. I mean, if it's viewed as um, just being uh, polite and and non-abusive then it's sort of a truism I mean you wouldn't you can't have abhorrent behavior condoned in, in any social setting especially one where you know work is trying to where you're trying to get work done um, but I think and and you know on the on the other hand um, you know if it's if it's viewed as some sort of obligation to be tempered in your advocacy or not um, uh, push the envelope or, or um, sort of accede to the other side's uh, views of what of how the case should go, then it does start to um, encroach on what the defense lawyer's job which is, which is to zealously represent the client, so on and so forth. Um, I don't think either of those really capture the, the best um, um, formulation of what civility is really about. Civility, I think, most usefully understood is um, the, the notion that what we're doing in court is something that involves civilized behavior, uh, resolution of disputes through persuasion rather than certainly physical force, but also um, intimidation or, or um, tactics that draw on things other than the persuasive force of evidence and, and argument. Um, and in that sense, um, I think civility is an important concept that's not really in tension with the, with the uh, purpose of zealous advocacy um, because what I, when we're trying to teach lawyers to uh, be civil, what we're doing is try is trying to focus them on what they're do, there to do in the first place, which is to uh, persuade through argument rather than any sort of inappropriate persuasion technique, such as epithets, intimidation, appeals to emotion over reason, 
so on and so forth, which I think can all be characterized in their own way as being uncivil. Um, and, and seen that way, I think it's, it's a potentially useful concept, but also one that's not really at odds with anything what we're, what we're there to do. Now, the Groya case was very famous in Canada because that, that was a long saga that worked its way to the Supreme Court from a, a, about a lawyer who behaved uncivilly in, in court over the course of a very, very long trial. And th that has given rise to a lot of uh, debate in our profession about the role of the regulator mm. in policing civility in, in court. And a lot of uh, both uh, bo sort of um, interorum arguments on both sides. I don't really see it because I don't, I, other than Groya, I, I'm not aware of any really significant civility prosecutions um, that the Law Society is under, has undertaken. Um, you know, the Law Society tends to be busy uh, going after lawyers who drain trust accounts and misconduct themselves in other obvious ways. And civility is something that if it's policed, at all is usually policed by judges in, in, in courtrooms mm -hmm. who are there to run the show and make sure that the process is one of um, reasonable argument and presentation of evidence rather than un, un, uncivil techniques of attempted persuasion. And usually that's, that's, that's where it gets resolved. So I'm not um, like, the Groya, even though it ended up in a victory in the in the Supreme Court for Mr. Groya, um, there there has still been concern that it would lead to, um, you know, the defanging of the zealous advocate and over uh, over zealous interference with the right to counsel to raise fearlessly every defense. And I just I haven't seen it in 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 practice here. On the criminal side, in my experience, lawyers tend to be very civil. It's not really a big problem uh, in, my, in, in my corner of the bar. Uh, very few lawyers, uh, at least experienced lawyers, and lawyers who are, who are interested to do significant cases are acting in an uncivil manner in the first place. In criminal law, I think the stakes are usually too high for people to get diverted into um, uncivil modes of argument and communication. So it's not a problem I see a lot uh, on the ground, um, but it's certainly still the, the subject of a lot of discussion in the bar. Yeah, and in this case you mentioned, the, the Goya case wasn't a criminal case. No, I mean, people yeah. think of it as a criminal yeah. case because yeah. it, was a, it, was a pros it was a regulatory prosecution. Uh, a, a, a securities prosecution that, that took a circuitous course and went on for hundreds of days of trial. Um, what people are sometimes surprised by is that the criminal bar, I think, tends to be the most civil and collegial part of the bar. The civil bar is where the real, where only money is at stake, is where you see the sparks really fly and 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 the. The descent into uncivil uh, phone calls, letter exchanges, and 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 so forth. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to uh, 
please uh, do. speak ill of my please colleagues do. in the civil <laughs> bar, but I think I'm I'm pretty you know I it's 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 nice to be in an area of practice where that is very much the exception rather than the norm, even with and especially with crown attorneys with whom we are. Um, engaged in adversarial um, uh, combat in, in the courtroom, it's very rare to uh, for it to descend into anything approaching invective or uncivil communication because uh, it doesn't it's not helpful to either to either side and it's certainly not impressive to the court. Um, yeah to me that that then raises the relationship the question of the relations between, ethical obligation and, and just kind of um, good advocacy um, um, I mean it, it seems it's kind of it's, it's easy if, if in the end it just turns out that being ethical or, or civil uh, turns out to be you know the kind of thing you would do if you want to do well or if you you know if you if you don't want to offend people you have to work with every day for example or people uh, you have to you know bargain Mm -hmm. with about a, sorry, a plea agreement or, or the judge you know you want to practice for before, uh, before on a regular basis and you're in a long illustrious career um, but but aren't you concerned that at, at some point you, you <laughs> your relationship with with your colleagues becomes so so very civil that perhaps the your client might uh, perhaps incorrectly but get the sense that you know, thank, thanks very much for being so civil with, with the people you <laughs> right. work with every day, but, you know, I could actually do with a somewhat, you know, muted civility because I would prefer if maybe you were, you know, on my side as opposed to on, on theirs. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's largely a matter of perception. I mean, I think clients need to understand that your, the client's case is very rarely advanced by the, by the crown hating your guts. Uh, and finding you obnoxious. Uh, that almost never is the case. Now, it doesn't mean that you want to be, uh, you know, palling around with, the, with the, other, the lawyer on the other side in front of your client. I mean, that can, that can give them some justifiable concern. But you want to impart to them that your, your reputation for being uh, civil and skillful as a lawyer is part of what they've what, what they're retaining you for and is part of what will achieve for them the best result. Now, it's not always just, it's not always about being, um, f you know, friendly or, or amenable to things. I mean, sometimes being um, uh, uh, zealous and, um, and appropriately uh, diligent is going to involve taking very adversarial positions and very critical positions if you have an actor in the system who's adverse in interest to your client who's behaving badly. And sometimes it's the police, sometimes it's less often it's the crown, but sometimes it's the crown, sometimes it's even the judge. And, and part of being a, a good lawyer is, is, is knowing when that's happening, when to really stand up and not be so, I mean, you're always civil, but being uh, appropriately and harshly critical in circumstances that justify it is not, in my view, a derogation from uh, civility properly understood. And that's what I meant about civility, not just being uh, politeness. I mean, mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's simply being polite and, and friendly all the time, then, then that will um, handcuff you in, in circumstances that call for something stronger. But 
if it's understood in a way that allow that would allow you to be appropriately uh, critical and 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 harsh and denunciatory in in, in appropriate circumstances, then I, d I don't think there's a um, a conflict. I mean, I think there's a tension sometimes, and I don't I think it's overly facile to say that being civil is always the same as good advocacy and there's never any tension in in in, in anything um that's sort of a, a just so story that 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 is maybe too good to be true but um it's certainly um it, it's I, i'm not aware of any circumstance in which being uncivil as i've defined it is is, is helpful to the to the client yeah actually i've I... I, I try to think of one. I thought of one when you when you when you defined it. Sure. Uh, so I want to ask you about that, and then maybe at the end, I, I'm I'm curious what you make of this notion of sharp uh, practice, which to me is kind of the, you know, goes really well with civility, and that mm -hmm. that's, except on the other side, but uh, that doesn't mean that one is you know any any more clearly defined than the other. But mm -hmm. um, but so the the. The, the case I was thinking of is is because you mentioned that uh, appeal to, to emotion over over reason was was mm -hmm. one of the examples of uncivil um, conduct and I mean I would think that there would be cases where as a defense attorney you know if you you don't have great arguments on on the facts um, appealing to the emotion of if you have a jury or or, or Maybe less likely a judge uh, might be just what it takes to, to give your your client a shot. I'm I'm thinking of the extreme case in the United States uh, in death penalty cases, for example, where especially the sentencing phase. I mean, you know, the facts are no longer in dispute. The and really all you have is is an is an appeal to to emotion. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I'm. I'm yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. And I don't mean to, I, I certainly wouldn't mean to say that all appeals to emotion are inappropriate or uncivil. What, I'm, I, what I was trying to get at is that certain circumstances in which um, uh, uh, personalizing a dispute, um, especially in terms of counsel's own, own emotions or feelings, can um, inappropriately detract from 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 the merits in a way that does descend into incivility. But certainly, I mean, no, I mean, trials are all about mm. feelings and emotions, and and so is sentencing, and and those are all you know valid uh, 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 aspects of the or tools in the toolbox for the for the lawyer that are exploited on both sides by the by the crown sometimes as as well. And you raise death penalty cases. Well, those, I mean, that may be uh, an exception that, that proves the rule in the sense that it, you know, it, it may be that in a, um, a system that's fundamentally um, unjust, um, such as, I mean, I would consider a death penalty system to be, that, um, a, that loyalty to extra systemic um, ethical obligations uh, outranks loyalty to um, ethical obligations within the system, and lawyers there have a much more difficult um, relationship to the system than than what we have in Canada. We're fortunate for that. To, not that our system is perfect, but it's it's one that most lawyers can feel 
comfortable with in its broad outlines and and we can so we can inhabit our role in a way that doesn't produce those fundamental conflicts in the way that being um, a a death penalty lawyer in the in the states would and there um, I think these tensions would be um, all but unresolvable in certain ways and may may require at an ethical level um, uh, conduct that is not in in uh, not consistent with the uh, strictures of the uh, ethical obligations of counsel as the courts and and legislatures have defined them but I'm fortunate not to live not to work in that in that system um, so a uh, few words about uh, sharp practice do you do you find this uh, a useful way of, of framing uh, or, or drawing the line between um, civil and uncivil or ethical and and unethical uh, conduct? Yeah, it can't. I mean, it, I think often when we refer to sharp practice, we we are talking about um, petty taking of advantage in a tactical uh, way of, of lapses or weaknesses on the other side in a way that may produce some superficial short-term advantage for the, the person who's taking advantage of that in that way. Um, but doesn't advance the the underlying dispute. So, you know, not agreeing to a reasonable adjournment request when you know the circumstances of the lawyer on the other side require it, or trying to enforce a deadline that is not of any uh, subs not of any significance to the case. Um, that's those are uh, um, instances of sharp practice that can throw sand in the gears of the judicial machinery in, in a way that doesn't ultimately produce a lot of benefit to the client but can frustrate the um, uh, uh, objective of making the process run smoothly partly for its knock-on effects of, of then uh, requiring sharp behavior from the lawyer on the other side knowing that lawyer knowing that they're not going to get any reasonable concessions from the other lawyer from the other lawyer who's already withheld them. So um, that, um, I think, is a type of incivility. We talk about incivility usually as, um, most often it's, it's been talked uh, about in, in terms of courtroom conduct, but that kind of conduct out of, outside of the courtroom um, can also have an uncivil aspect and can be, again, also, it can, it can be uncivil in the sense that it detracts from the objective of of resolving a dispute before the courts in a reasoned manner. And that's ultimately what we're all supposed to be there to do. Well, well that's a great way to wrap it up. So thanks very much for talking to us, Matt. Um, and yeah, thank you all very right. much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Get Ethical, the podcast of the Center for Ethics and its Ethics of AI Lab at the University of Toronto. To learn more about the Center's activities, please visit our website at ethics.utoronto.ca.